the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Yes, it is. And welcome back. Monday, November 30th, 2020. As we do every second hour, every Monday, we check in with Brandon Weikert. Winning Space is the name of his book, How America Remains a Superpower. He's working on a new book, and that may be even more trenchant for our times. Brandon, I hope you had a good holiday. Welcome back. Thanks for being with us. You're welcome. I'm probably 20 pounds heavier than I was when we last spoke after that magnificent Thanksgiving that my wonderful mother put together. But uh, uh, yes, yes, I'm very good. I had a great Thanksgiving. I hope you did as well. Yes, absolutely. It was good. It was good to take some time off and it was good to remember the important things we are thankful for. One of them, and I know Iran's a lot in the news today. I want to talk to you about that. One of them is the foreign policy that looks to be handed off to Joe Biden. And it's not a republic if he can keep it, but it's a foreign policy if he can keep it. And the signs don't look good. Um, They just don't on a number of fronts. I I don't know if you saw – let me start, if I might, here with an odd name, Thomas Friedman. Ah, yes. Did you, by chance, see his piece yesterday in the New York Times? Dear Joe, it's not about Iran's nukes anymore. His point. I saw the headline, yeah, yeah. His but point. I didn't well, here read was his point. It was behind the table. Yeah, you tell me. You, well, I'm glad you're not paying them. I have to. It's an old joke. <laughs> I have to. But you. Um, his larger. Yeah, his larger point is that the thing to be concerned about with Iran. Right now, obviously, always nuclear, but more urgently, are there pre- precision guided precision cruise missiles? missiles. Yeah. Talk yes. to us about that. I've written about this. Yeah. yeah. So, this is actually so, just so the audience knows, I am currently knee deep in my next book, which is on the Middle East, and it largely is about Iran and what's going on with us in Iran. And so, uh, Iran has been building their precision guided missile capabilities. Now, Iran has had that for a while. But they're doing something very dangerous that I think is actually a snapshot of what they're going to do when they have a fully functional nuclear weapons arsenal. They are handing off the precision-guided munitions to Hezbollah, and they're also handing them off to the Houthi rebels in Yemen. So what's going on is uh, we see Hezbollah, uh, they're, they're lacing uh, critical ports throughout the region, they're hiding stores of ammonium, which is highly explosive chemical. They're hiding them or storing them uh, under the radar at places like Haifa. Now, this is the basis of my next article for the Washington Times that I'm pitching them soon. Uh, it looks to me like after the assassination of the godfather of Iran's uh, nuclear weapons program this weekend and the fact that Iran themselves fired precision-guided missiles at the uh, oil production facilities in Saudi Arabia, eastern Saudi Arabia, over the weekend, uh, it looks like Iran is now threatening to fire precision-guided missiles at Haifa, Israel. Why is that important? 
it's not just because it's a very storied target. It's a, you know, it's a, it's a populated area, but it's because I believe they are fully well aware of the ammonium uh, storage storage uh, uh, facilities at uh, Hyphos Port that Hezbollah has been secretly storing there exactly for this day. And what will happen is, remember the Beirut blast earlier this year in which ammonium nitrate may or may not have accidentally exploded, uh, you know, whatever happened there, it was the equivalent almost of a small-yield nuclear weapon. Thankfully, the way the Beirut port was designed, it did not level the city that when it, when it blew up. However, Haifa's port is not so fortunate. If, if the ammonium stores are detonated by a precision missile in Iran or fired from Iran over Haifa, hits the port, there will be a, a, the equivalent of a small-yield nuclear weapons explosion. And I think it is very intentional, and I think the Iranians are fully well aware of the presence of that, of that sword, of that, that, that uh, chemical stored there. And I think that they are prepared to fire that if things continue to escalate and wipe out Haifa. And that's where I think we're headed right now. What, there's a lot to that, and I want to unpack it with you. Uh, I have read now two different accounts of the Iranian regime's leadership. You're hard at work in research on this right now. And I'm trying to remember who said it. It might have been in Friedman's column. You, you, you know how it is. You read so much, you, for, you remember the lines, right. but you Absolutely. forget I, the authors, right? Yeah. Um, it might have been Friedman's. It might have been someone else's. We're saying that the ayatollahocracy of Iran <laughs> is not suicidal, but it is homicidal. Years ago, Bernard Lewis was saying, well, they oh, are yeah. kind of uh, suicidal in a millenarian yeah. aspect. You know yeah. the quote, right, that you can't have mutually assured destruction with people who look forward to destruction. Where, yes. do, where do you put yes. Iran's leadership now on that equation? Or is there another equation? So, well, and, and in the book, I specifically trace the, 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 the Iranian revolution of 1979. You have to understand, Iran is a revolutionary regime. And specifically, they are not just... Everybody knows they're Shiite Muslims, which is different from the Sunni Muslims who, who usually were usually at war with in the war on terror. They, they tend to be Sunni Muslims, fanatical Sunni Muslims. I want to come back uh, to the that. Shi, yeah. The Shiite Muslims who overthrew the Shah in 1979 and put in the Grand Ayatollah, they are specifically... Twelver Shiites, that's yeah. a sect of Shia Islam that is extremely apocalyptic, and they fully believe that if they can uh, initiate a, a war against the unbelievers, who happen to also be their regional neighbors that they want to take out anyway, and it just happens to gel very nicely with their geopolitical ambitions, but the, the Mullahocracy, as I call them, uh, Ayatollahocracy is another good one, they very much, there's a strain, going back to the formation of the regime in 1979, there is an unbroken strain of the ideological fervor that says, we do not fear nuclear war, because at the end of the day, the nukes will unleash the Mahdi, the, the messiah of, of Twelver Shia Islam, and that who was uh, uh, occluded in the, I think it was the, the ninth century, by the Sunnis who assassinated the 11th Imam, and the belief was the 12th Imam of Shia Islam would be the Messiah who would restore justice and balance to the world 
and overcome the Sunnis and all the unbelievers. And it's believed that the 12th Imam was in fact born in captivity during the Abbasid dynasty, and that he has been occluded all this time by the believers and by Allah himself. And by initiating a nuclear apocalyptic war against the Sunni neighbors of Iran, as well as the Israelis and the Christian Crusaders represented by the United States, the, the, the Ayatollah believes on some level that he can therefore initiate the return of the, of the uh, Mahdi. And that is very much at play here. And I know that American policy analysts freak out when I bring this up, but they have never disavowed that origin of their regime. Uh, which goes back to the Grand Ayatollah Rahullah uh, Khomeini, uh, who who was the the founder of the of the regime, and he very much believed in the Twelver Mahdi uh, idea that the, the the Imam, the Twelfth Imam, must be released from his occlusion and visit death and destruction upon the unbelievers, and that is very much at play right now with this regime. And anyone who says otherwise. Is simply not plugged in. It's not that everyone in the regime. Right. I was just going to say it's, it's that, not. Uh, it's not necessarily yes, dominating yes. all thinking, but it is yes. there. Right. But in the, the the power centers and the IRGC, Iranian Revolutionary Guards Corps, and the Quds Force of the IRGC, which was commanded by General Qasem Soleimani until very recently, you bet, you bet, they believe in that, and that's the thing that matters because the IRGC and the religious fundamentalists are still the drivers, mostly, of this regime. Well, you know, you can look to some of Iran's actions. Now, they are in years past, at least by my identity, by my, uh, by my picking and choosing of them, that, that go to some of this. For example, during the Iran-Iraq War, I don't know if you know the story of the kids and the besiege force that were used yes. as mine, yes. you know, human mine, minefield dispatchers. They were given little plastic keys, to yes. hang around their neck, to unlock, right? To unlock, to unlock the gates yes. of heaven when, yes. they, when the mines they detected exploded. And they just sent wave of wave of child after child, of children after children into these minefields. Yes. You see that sort yes. of thing did exist, does exist at least in some thinking. To this day. To yes. this yes. day, fair enough. And that's what makes this all so frightening because you know that an attack on Haifa would be that death warrant. Let me, let me, let, we're going to the music, Brandon yes. Weikert. Let me, um, let me come back on that. And I also want to come back on this issue of Sunni and Shiite terrorism, uh, if we can. Yes. I'm Seth Liebson. He's Brent. Do you have a title for your new book? Uh, it, the, the publisher hates it, so I don't want to say it. We're going to change it probably. Okay. Brandon Weikert's <laughs> book number two, Make Benefit. <laughs> we'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. If you want to do something really good for yourself, let me ask you to take a look at Balance of Nature. It's not like ordinary vitamins. It's natural food in a vegetarian capsule. You just take it once a day and you get tens of thousands of vital nutrients. It's the most effective whole food supplement on the market. It'll improve your energy, your health. It'll boost your immunity which is what you want, especially this time of year. And Balance of Nature has a great deal. They're continuing with their free shipping and 35% off any new preferred order of their fruits and veggies. Give them a call at 800 
888-246-2468751 or go to balanceofnature.com and use discount code BALANCE. You'll be so glad you did. We're talking to Brandon Weicker. His previous book, Winning Space, How America Remains a Superpower, critical read <coughs> that came out this year, working <coughs> on a new book um, about the Middle East. Brandon, you said something, and it's making a lot of us kind of dust off things we learned shortly after 9-11. You know, that was an interesting thing about 9-11. We, we did a bunch of things as a society. One of the things we did is a lot of us really bought a lot of books and boned up on Middle East history and stuff like that. It was really right. quite a lot, of, a lot of great scholarship came out of there, but it's been forgotten. Yeah. Maybe we've had the yeah. luxury of forgetting a lot of it. And one of the things you said was, you know, with regard to the policies or perhaps uh, actions of Sunnis versus Shiites, it's typically the Sunnis we combat when we think of terrorism. I wanted to um, ask you about something that I remember reading in a couple different places. We underestimate a bit at our peril, do we not, the actual Khomeinist revolution of 79 when we think yeah. about what that did in the region to the Sunni mind. That is to say, yeah. roughly up until 1979, roughly, there wasn't an awful lot of Sunni terrorism. There was Palestinian terrorism. But mostly it was the right. theological radicalism of the Khomeinists that yeah. inspired or, or, or catalyzed the Sunnis to take yeah. note and do much the same in their faith. Is that not true, or yeah. is that a misread? Uh, no, it, it is partly true. So beginning in 1923, the Muslim Brotherhood was birthed right. in, in opposition to... Uh, both the secular, autocratic, Arabist uh, uh, political movements that ultimately General Nasser of Egypt came to lead and represent, right. them, sure. uh, which was basically Arab socialism. Uh, and then it was also really birthed, though, in, in opposition to British imperialism mm -hmm. at the time. Mm -hmm. uh, and and that the strain of ideological uh, Islamist thought uh, slowly matured over about 40 or 50 years in the Middle East until it exploded forth in Saudi Arabia. Uh, in the, 19, in the It was actually concurrent with uh, the Khomeinist uh, 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 revolution in Iran, uh, the, the seizure of the Grand Mosque in 1979 uh, at Mecca, mm -hmm. in which a group of Sunni fundamentalists uh, took hostages and basically started massacring fellow Sunni Muslims who had come to do the pilgrimage uh, at Mecca because they thought that the the, Su the Saudi regime had become decadent and needed to be overthrown and replaced by a more religious fervor, uh, uh, religiously fervent Sunni regime. And uh, their seizure of the Grand Mosque was one of the most epic events in recent history that's been widely forgotten. And what happened was the, the, the Saudi regime had to call in basically French commanders. French, I was going to say the French. The French, God knows right. they knew how right. to do it then, didn't they? Yeah. Yes, they did. And they came in and they seized it. And the, 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 the leader of the group was this 19 or 20-year-old uh, wealthy scion uh, in, in, from the, this Wahhabist part of, of Saudi Arabia, and basically, the religious clerics made a deal. That guy would go to jail, and I think he was executed, but you're going to have to do something, House of Saud, 
about the fact that a lot of our young people agreed with what the Wahhabis yeah, did. Right. And if you don't if you don't want to go the way of the Shah next door, you're gonna have to make a deal with us. And so what the House of Saud did was they said if you don't advocate for religious extremism being conducted within Saudi Arabia, the kingdom, we will pay you to export that around the world. Mm-hmm. And that is what happened. And so the basis you saw this with the um the, what was it, the foundation in the 90s uh, that, that the FBI was investigating. And Holy Land made, Foundation. That, Holy, the Holy Land yeah, Foundation. Yeah. You saw all the Saudi funny money in there, yeah. and that was because uh, it was the deal. Basically, the House of Saud was not this great Islamist movement. The House of Saud was weak and scared to death that they were going to be overthrown by the young people at the time who were as fanatical as the Shiite uh, revolutionaries the 12 were revolutionaries in Iran next right. door, and so they made a deal. And that's what we've been dealing with, is the fallout from this deal for the last 30 years. And then there was also the issues in Afghanistan and Pakistan, which was also happening concurrently that led to the Soviet invasion so really, of Afghanistan. So really, the, the year 1979 is the is the reset of all this. Yes, oh, the Banna and the Muslim yes. Brotherhood of the 20s yeah. that was festering throughout. And we are right? an ancillary player. I right. want to make that clear to okay. audience members. It's, it's easy to blame America and the West, and certainly British colonialism and French colonialism and Russian colonialism played a role. But the idea that America is at fault for the creation of these movements is such a bad interpretation of history. We are an ancillary player in all of this. This is internal Islamic uh, uh, divisions and politics that is being externalized, uh, and and we 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 all we can do is basically have a stiff upper lip and kind of hold the line when it comes to our interests. But we are not the cause of this. We are not. At most, if you want to blame someone, blame the Brits and blame the Russians. By the way, they never take the blame. They're always excused. Blame the Russians too. But we are an ancillary two-bit player in all of. I'll never forget, you know, you get all these lectures about, well, well, if we didn't overthrow Mossadegh, I'll never forget Michael Nadine telling me once, he said, Seth, you're probably talking to no American who has known more Iranians than I, Michael said to me, said, I've never heard about the overthrow of Mossadegh from a single Iranian. You only hear about it from the left wing college campuses in America. That's right. And real quickly, keep in mind, I wrote an article for Real Clear World back in January in which I, I really walked through the history for the reader. And what you found is that not only did, did Mossadegh not, not be a factor in the 1979 overthrow. The Ayatollah was against also, him, right? The, the religious clerics right. were actually helping right. uh, the CIA right. during the, the coup right. Right. against Mossadegh. The theocrats were on the CIA side, exactly. No one knows That's this. Right. Yeah, no one knows it. Brandon, what I want to do when we come back, we're heading into a break. Can I talk to you a little bit about what to expect? Because, you know, if the Democrats were smart, they would know what a gift they were given. I'm thinking they're more ideological than smart. Can we talk about that when we come back? Absolutely. I'm Absolutely. Seth Liebson. He's Brandon Weikert. The Weikert Report is his website, W-E-I-C-H-E-R-T, theweikertreport.com. His most recent book, Winning Space, How America Remains a Superpower. Can we remain one? Um, if we accept the gifts that were given over the last four years, I think we can. The question is, will we? Will we? We'll find out from Brandon when we come right back.
Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Delighted to have with us, as we do every Monday, Brandon Weikert from the Weikert Report. Winning Space is his book, How America Remains a Superpower. He is working on a new book, primarily having to do with foreign policy in the Middle East. I worry about this putative incoming administration, Brandon. Uh, What do we know so far about what you think the reality and the rhetoric is? They wanted to restore the nuclear uh, arms agreement, uh, nuclear uh, Iranian nuclear agreement. I don't know if they're going to. Um, I, I, what's your sense? I don't know if it's smart, and I don't know if they're gonna. What do you think? Uh, I am a hundred percent convinced that if they were to take over tomorrow, the first two things that would be done would be the restoration of America in the green, uh, uh, the climate. Paris Climate Deal, yep, I think that's as well primary, as, the, yeah. as well as the restoration of America in the Iran nuclear deal. I say it like that because it looks to me like the administration, of the current administration, the Trump administration, might be sort of stepping back and telling the Israelis, hey, this might be your last chance to kind of, you know, really do damage for the next, at least the next four years to the uh, Iranian uh, nuclear weapons and ballistic missile program. So you better do something now. You better let her rip. And we know that Jared Kushner, who really is the architect of the Abraham Accords, we know that he flew to the region uh, yesterday with his team. Uh, And I think um, a couple of people from the National Security Council. So, you know, he's not there just looking at the sites. He's, He's there to talk business because... I think that everyone knows that if Biden takes over and there's not much change going on in the region, that he's going to restore America's role in the ill-fated, horribly crafted Obama-era Iran nuclear agreement. And so I think that we, that we might be seeing this administration as it's leaving, uh, trying to maybe set the table where Biden cannot restore that agreement because too much has been done. Uh, at the kinetic level between Israel and Iran, and Iran is now going to overstep and is going to force the next administration to respond militarily. Um, Now, we can talk about whether that's, you know, right or fair or whatever, and there's an argument to be made that maybe Trump shouldn't let that happen, that, you know, transition and whatever. But the bottom line is um, Biden wants to restore that agreement I don't know if events on the ground will allow him right. to restore that right. agreement by the time he's sworn in. And Thomas Friedman's kind of getting to that a little bit, I think. Yes. Saying that yes. the Middle East is not what it was four years ago, which begs it's this not question. What it was two years it's ago. It's not what it was two years ago. Fair point. Yeah. Which, which raises this question. We've been talking about the Middle East and uh, Iran, particularly for the last, whatever, 30, 30 or so minutes. And the name Palestinian really hasn't come up. I saw Max Baucus on TV earlier today. I guess he has a foundation now. And he was saying, if you don't solve that problem, though, the Palestinian issue, all of it is in vain. Nothing good will come. And I just got to think it's the last gasp of a person who doesn't even read his own newspaper. No, no, look, listen, uh, you know, linkage has been the name of the game for 50 years in Washington, D.C. And linkage linking the Israeli-Palestinian conflict to the wider uh, conflicts tearing apart the Middle East has gotten us literally nowhere. Uh, and it, it's so much so that all of these geniuses in both parties, the foreign policy establishment, they could never make any headway on either event 
uh, either resolving the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and therefore the wider Middle Eastern conflict. It's so much so that it took a relative, you know, mace in the form of Jared Kushner to come in and actually move the cause of peace in the Middle East in any conceivable direction uh, beyond uh, neutral. Uh, and, uh, you know, they hate, they hate Trump and Kushner for that. But th- this idea that linkage is the, is the end-all, be-all is the stupidest uh, concept I've ever heard of. And, it is, and, it, and you can rest assured that if the conditions on the ground do not change drastically from where they are now, that the incoming administration will not only re-engage in the Iran nuclear agreement, but that they will also focus heavily on pressuring Israel to give up more territory uh, to a Palestinian failed state uh, in order to, uh, you know, placate the gods of, of Washington's foreign policy. I got I to run to a break here, but real quickly, real quickly, I think it's worth pointing out, if the Palestinian efforts were granted everything they asked for, everything, it would not change one sentence of the equation between Iran and Israel. Not one. That's right. Not one. Right. All right. We'll be right back That's with right. more from Brandon Weikert. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. If you're looking to sell your home or even buy one, James Wexler of JMG Real Estate is the agent for you. James has a proprietary and state-of-the-art marketing technology which enables his customers' homes to be viewed by the widest pool of qualified buyers. As a result, his listings sell faster and for more money than any other individual agent in Arizona, accord the Phoenix Business Journal. He guarantees to sell your home at market value or he will pay you the difference. He can also make you an upfront guaranteed offer right away within reaching him if that's easier for you. Give James Wexler a call at 480-386-0711 or visit him online at jameswexler.com. That's jameswexler, W-E-X-L-E-R dot com. Brandon Weikert is our guest. We're talking about uh, the possible changes in foreign policy. We've talked a little bit about a lot of bit about the Middle East. Brandon, uh, what else do you see um, as a potential uh, turnaround, whether it's Russia, Europe, Asia, Africa? What what else worries you about uh, a putative Biden administration? Well, we're going to be invading Syria. That's for starters. Really? We're going to be putting... I, I'm convinced that we are going to be putting a boatload more uh, uh, group of, of U.S. servicemen and women in in uh, Syria. Uh, Anthony Blinken, who is the tentative uh, Biden pick for Secretary of State, uh, famously said, I think it was a day or two after the election, he was on Morning Joe, and he said to the host that um, he was most aggrieved by the Trump foreign policy decision to uh, pull, start trying to draw down from Syria, because as he said, we America lost its leverage in Syria. And I'm thinking, leverage over what? To what end were we trying to have leverage? What was the objective? And we know that since 2011, the Syria issue has been a huge black mark on the Obama administration's foreign policy. We know that they were moving weapons from uh, former Gaddafi 
uh, weapons caches in uh, Libya. They were moving it via Turkey and placing it in the hands of what the CIA said were moderate rebels in Syria fighting against Assad, but in fact were actually the head choppers of uh, of al-Nusra and uh, other Islamist groups and uh, ISIS at the time. And uh, so the, 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 the mission to topple Bashar al-Assad and therefore deal a critical, they believe, geopolitical blow to Russia by depriving Russia of its air bases at Natakia and its naval base at Tardis, which gets them access to the eastern Mediterranean Sea. That is the priority of the Obama-Biden people. It has always been. And you can bet that they're going to be enhancing America's role in Syria on the ground as a way to roll back Russian uh, power in the Middle East, as well as to topple what they think is an unacceptable dictator in the form of Bashar al-Assad. It's going to be a disaster. It will be even worse than Libya, and it will mire the United States in a way in the Middle East that we haven't been mired in since the beginning of the Iraq War, which is the last thing that our foreign policy needs. It's also going to create even greater tension. I'm hearing from friends of mine who are involved with the Democrats that the, particularly the Kamala Harris wing, as well as the Blinken wing of the Biden team, want, quote, revenge on Russia, because they clearly believe that Russia tried to manipulate the 2016 election. And so you can expect that the Syria issue will open up an even greater can of worms with nuclear-armed Russia, which already increasingly feels as though it has little left to lose, uh, and that a Biden administration will likely start some kind of conflict, either a Cold War or something, God help us, worse when it comes to Russia. So look at Syria blowing up and greater tension against Russia. At the same time, we're trying to deal more nicely with Iran and China, which I think is just a terrible decision. I just think it, it needs to be stopped. I think that we need to slow this move by Biden down as, as much as possible. Let me um, let me bring up two questions coming from that answer, Brandon. Thank you for that. A lot of different columns, pieces, you've probably written some talking about how Donald Trump may have changed the Republican Party or converted it into a this or a that. I think one thing, all these analyses are interesting to me, but one thing I think is for certain that he did change the Republican mind on at least the bulk of it, is the idea of these uh, adventurous wars in the Middle East. Um, that that was, you know, that was the Bush family, to be sure. Um, and that's what, you know, Republicans were very supportive of for a very long time. And I do think the Trump administration, the Trump rhetoric, the Trump doctrines, they did establish a different mood in America, at least amongst conservatives, about the limits of our capabilities abroad, yeah. right? Well, well, I don't think, you know, I don't even know if it changed mine. I think it just forced, because remember, a majority of Republican voters did not support greater Middle East involvement from probably 2006 okay. onward. It was the Republican elite. And okay. I think Trump being elected forced the Republican elite to accept what was popular opinion of the Republican Party base which is no more adventurism in the Middle East. Okay. It doesn't lead anywhere good. The second thing, thank you for that. The second thing I wanted to raise with you is while Biden and his team keep looking at Syria, it was just so precious little that was written about Syria in the Obama-Biden administration. 
Uh, Syria would not be the charnel house it is were it not for Barack Obama's 2012 red line speech. Right. I mean, yeah. I always say the th- yeah. interesting thing about it. It's not like Syria was any great place. It was one of the worst places. But I always you, you it can get worse. Things can get worse yet, as Shakespeare said. But and it yeah. did. But one of the things I always found interesting about the that Obama red line thing, it's not that they didn't take Barack Obama seriously and that he didn't follow up. It's that they knew he wouldn't follow up. That's what was so interesting to me. Yes, yes. And I also think, uh, yes, you're right about that on the external side, yes. But I think it's important to understand, and Seymour Hersh's book, The Killing of Bin Laden, was probably the best because he talks about what was going on in Syria at the same time. Um, There was a struggle, if you'll remember, within the Obama administration's foreign policy team between the likes of Hillary Clinton and the likes of... Yeah, and exactly. And the likes of um, Ben Rhodes, for instance, mm-hmm. where you had after the Arab Spring and the eruption of the Syrian Civil War, you had Hillary Clinton and uh, Petraeus, who was CIA director at the time, saying, let's let's funnel funds and Qaddafi's captured arms in a rat line from Libya to Turkey down to the, the, the rebels in Syria, and we can cheaply overthrow Assad the way we overthrew Qaddafi. Because remember, they all thought Qaddafi was a success story. Of mm-hmm. course it wasn't. Mm-hmm. And uh, there, there was another group in the, in, the, in the administration, Robert Gates, saying, hey, look, um, this is probably not going to end well. You want to have your head examined if you want to get involved in another Middle Eastern war. And the, the elements of the Obama administration that wanted to destabilize and topple Assad are the same group that are now being mm-hmm. elevated in the nascent Biden administration, and they have made it very clear what their intention is. They are not as concerned about jihadist threats. Remember, hold that, hold that thought. I got to, I got to take the break. Pick up that yeah. on the other side, if you will. Yeah. Not necessarily sure. jihadist threats. We'll be with Brandon Weicker. Right, we'll be right back with Brandon Weicker. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Brandon Weikert has been our guest. You were making a really interesting point. We had to, had to take the break, Brandon. I wanted you to be able to make it about the concerns not necessarily being jihadist. Well, for the, for the, the, the Obama kind of right. foreign policy people, they are very much ensconced in this idea that, remember, remember ISIS was the JV team. Obama said it repeatedly. Right. Obama didn't really think they were that big of a deal. Um, Obama said after bin Laden died, the war on terror is over. Don't, don't worry about it anymore. Bin Laden's dead. The GM is alive. And um, Obama's people really took that to heart. And what you had in Syria was not a traditional concern about actual terror. You had a concern, a geopolitical game going on, sort of like how the Spanish Civil War was the proving ground for the powers that ultimately fought the Second World War. Syria has become a proving ground for the powers that I think are also going to fight the third world. In the meantime, all of these terrorist groups are going ignored. We're, we're not really hitting. And this was why Russia intervened in the first place in Syria, because they were telling the Obama people, hey, you've got convoys of ISIS oil tankers that are being taken to market. We're tracking them. We know you see them. Why don't you blow them up? You have all the air assets in the area at the time. And Obama was saying, no, 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 not the problem, not the problem. There's environmental concerns if we blow up oil tankers. And so that, that was one of the reasons that Russia ultimately intervened. They also realized very quickly 
that the, the West was involved in what was probably an irresponsible containment strategy of Russia. That's why the Russians went into Crimea and the Ukraine. That's why they ultimately used the Syrian civil war as an excuse to enhance their standing in Syria, because they have the naval base at Tardis, and they have the air bases at Latakia, which gives them immense power projection capabilities. And they knew that if Syria's Assad fell, whatever replaced them would be inimical to those bases remaining in operation, and Russia would basically be pushed back uh, to the base of the South Caucasus, uh, which is outside of the Middle East at that point. And Russia views that as a non-starter for their strategy. So you have this greater obsession on the part of the Democrats with geopolitical concerns. And I get it, but the bottom line is is that the ISIS transnational terror threat, particularly in Syria, is a direct threat to the United States, whereas Russia and even Iran to an extent is more of an ancillary threat to us. Who cares if the Russians, they've always had a presence in Syria, going back to the 70s. Who cares? Assad, who is not a nice guy, Assad, though, has helped us since the 90s in the in the terrorist renditioning program we were sending up until 2012 we were sending captured al-qaeda suspects to syria's uh, prisons to be tortured by assad so we wouldn't have to torture them to get, extract information out of assad was helping us in that way so why on earth were we turning on him like this assad was making diplomatic uh, efforts to, to reach out to the West, to Washington. Remember, Obama at one point reopened the American embassy in Damascus before the Syrian civil war started. I do. Why didn't we continue that? I do. You know, he's not a great guy, but he's better than the alternative, which are the head choppers who are at war with the United States. Brandon and, Weicker, you know, we got to leave it there, anyway. buddy, until Thank next you. week. And I know yeah. you're just getting wound up, too. we got to do China <laughs> <Yeah>. next week. <laughs> God bless you, Brandon yes, Weicker. 602-508-0960 is our number. Your show the rest of the hour.